Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our second podcast. At the end of the day, this show is really about the lost art of medicine. And for those of us who are dissatisfied with the status quo in this thing we call healthcare, I am Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek. And today I am joined by two of my co hosts, Wes Mursa and AJ Mon Pettit. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Pretty good. And yourselves? Yeah, we're doing good. That's good. Well, today, guys, I'm super excited. I know we've each got a couple of different topics. I'm going to start with the first topic, which is something top of minds. I know on social media, uh, there's been a, a big uh, movement right now in regards to this topic. And the topic is around an article that was entitled Prevalence of Unprofessional Social Media Content among young vascular surgeons. And it was published in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, honestly, after uh, the backlash starting the week of July 23rd, the Journal of Vascular Surgery has actually retracted that article. But what I think is really interesting about the article is some of the, the different aspects that the article looked at. And so what the article did is they went ahead and they looked at young uh, vascular surgical residents between 2016 and 2018, and they went ahead and they looked at their social profiles and they followed them to see if people were leaving things in three different categories. And those categories were if they were unprofessional, if they were potentially unprofessional, or if you know they were kind of acceptable. And the way that they grouped or categorized things as unprofessional were topics around if it was controversial from a political or a religious perspective, it was controversial uh, from a social perspective, or if they thought it was inappropriate attire. And yeah, Andy, let me jump in real quick because I have the methods in front of me. Yep. I think this is really interesting to read through what they defined as clearly unprofessional and potentially unprofessional. So clearly unprofessional content, and I think we'll all be in agreement on this, is HIPAA violations. The rest, I think, is a very slippery slope for some of these, like intoxicated appearance. That seems very subjective. Unlawful behavior. Obviously, don't post stuff on social media of yourself breaking the law. Uh, possession of drugs or drug paraphernalia, another, yeah, don't be stupid. An uncensored profanity or offensive comments about colleagues, work, or patients. Uh, apparently, they've never had a rough day if they are considering that clearly unprofessional. Now, potentially unprofessional content is, like you were talking about, holding slash consuming alcohol. So no being adults and having adult beverages, inappropriate attire, uh, as long as your dress is the length of your fingers down your legs, you should be fine, censored profanity, controversial political or religious comments, and controversial social topics. Now, for me, just my initial gut reaction is at least three quarters of those are an extremely 
subjective and personal biasy based methodology just to begin with. And it seems like we should just throw the baby with the bathwater out on this one right away just from their methods. Well, not only that, but let's be real honest about this is the fact that it was three men who set up fake social media accounts and then they literally trolled their own colleagues just from a ethical standpoint that's kind of the the first thing and then to your point when it comes to the the methodology of being very subjective and whatnot i completely agree with you what i think is really interesting though is the movement that it caused. So I'm not sure if either one of you caught this, but on social media, they started the hashtag med bikini. And because uh, what they realized in the, the methodology is that the inappropriate attire was including pictures in underwear, provocative Halloween costumes, and provocative posing in bikinis or swimwear. And so, you know, I think it was just a horrible paper. I think, unfortunately, some newly trained medical students getting into residency were asked and sort of anointed to, to take this project on, not clearly sort of thinking about what the, the backlash and what the implications were going to be and the ramifications. It's interesting because obviously there's an old guard in professional societies that are trying to put their arms around hey, I am a physician and I'm supposed to look, think, act a particular way and everything that I project out there into the real world should follow suit. Whereas I think if you take a step back and you think about it from a patient's perspective, it's those humanistic qualities that patients are actually looking for from their physicians. They want to know physicians have a family that physicians enjoy themselves in after hours, that physicians are humans just like them, and they deal with, they suffer, they encounter some of the same things that their own patients do. And that's just what we were, what I said with the holding or consuming alcohol. If these are people who are of age, what's wrong with posting a picture of you having a drink with friends? I agree. I mean, I, I think the disconnect here is really about professional brand and what is that individual brand. I don't know, Wes, what, what do you think about this? You know, I think it's a great article for us to critique and to, for whatever reason, I think physicians are characterized in such a way that, you know, they're put up on a pedestal and, you know, idolized. And sometimes we forget that physicians have lives. Physicians do things outside of just practice medicine. And I think it's important not to criticize them. I completely agree with AJ with what you're saying that, you know, if you're of age and you're allowed to have alcohol, why can't you have a picture taken with you drinking alcohol with some colleagues or friends? I think that's totally acceptable. But, you know, the, the whole the attire, what you're supposed to wear, I don't, I don't, I don't follow that. You know, I, I would refer back to an article I read about a physician who back in 2012 decided to document his medical school career by joining Instagram. And what he was looking to do was to basically exactly what you said, Andy, is show that you can still have a life outside of the hospital, even though you're in medical school. So he would picture himself, take pictures of himself going out to eat with friends, going out and taking walks, being with his dog. And essentially, this, this physician went on, got recognized 
to become one of the sexiest doctors alive and his social profile ended up blowing up completely because of his commitment to showing what people do or what physicians do in the real world wait they have lives outside of the outside they do that's that's wild and what one point andy real quick i wanted to touch on is you said something early on about these people trolling these accounts and i i want to be very clear for me trolling is saying something to just evoke a reaction out of somebody uh being an edgelord kind of person to me i think one thing that this illustrates is we have to be very thoughtful about what we post. Not to say that any of this was necessarily wrong, but when you post stuff on social media and it's publicly available, you should have a mentality of it being on a billboard for everyone to drive by and see because that's how easy it is to find it. And these, I'm guessing, old white dudes could figure out how to make an account for each network and go publicly find you and see what's and that's the thing. They said it was publicly available. So this is not anything like a private account that is only for people who uh, follow them directly on Twitter, Instagram can see. I agree. And and I think there's in a, an appropriate distinction there you know, between trolling and, and whatnot. But this is kind of where I'm going to take this, which might be different than what most people think. And I'm going to take it back to one of the most sacred things that any physician does is is part of becoming a physician. And that's the Hippocratic Oath. I'm going to read two parts of the traditional origins of the Hippocratic Oath. So the first line of the Hippocratic Oath says, I swear by Apollo the physician and Asclepius in Hygieia Panacea and all the gods and goddesses as my witness that according to my ability and judgment, I will keep this oath and this contract. And if you skip down to the, the last part of the Hippocratic Oath, it states, so long as I maintain this oath faithfully and without corruption, may it be granted to me to partake of life fully and practice of my art, gaining the respect of all men for all time. However, should I transgress this oath and violate it, may the opposite be my fate. I think that's where a lot of this goes back to is that there is a, a sanctity in the Hippocratic Oath. And to know that three of your colleagues set up fake accounts to use that information to sort of expose or potentially take things that were just people living their life faithfully and without corruption and to use that in a way and put a spin around it to say that it's unprofessional or to make a judgment of it, I think is the big transgression here. And I think to me, that's where this kind of comes full, full circle is that physicians are humans and they have an art that they practice and there is a high level of just placement that happens with that. But at the same time, they also need to live life and they shouldn't have to disconnect their personal life from their professional life because that's only to be true to only half of yourself or part of yourself and not your whole self. That's what we seek. And when I say we, people in our communities and the patients that we may become, that's what we seek from our physicians is that we want the whole physician there. That's kind of my take on this. You know, Andy, I think you make a great point with that. What I do want to revert to is in this article, out of 480 young vascular surgeons that they looked into their profiles, 
only 3.4% of them had clearly unprofessional content. And what that means is clear alcohol intoxication or uncensored profanity or offensive comments about colleagues, work, or patients. That's a very, very small, minuscule number compared to how many they've actually interviewed. And that's eight people. Right. I mean, the 3.5%, that's eight accounts that they saw. So out of 480, eight people had something that they thought was really bad. So there was a misjudgment on eight people's part. But again, who are we to judge? And we are taking something out of context. We don't know if they were intoxicated or not. I mean, you can just take a bad picture. How can you prove that that was an intoxication? I've had I, bad pictures. I take horrible pictures as it is. Exactly. So I, I think this is very, very misleading. And this article doesn't lend any credence to, to anything that they've tried to accomplish by putting this together. You know, I think for me, the, the takeaway is, as I've told plenty of my physician friends and colleagues and those that, that I help with personal branding is, is that the more that you can show and are willing to show of your whole self and personal life and sort of figuring out what is that right balance between your professionalism and your personalism, that that is the best brand. And that is truly what our end users and patients and people in our communities, that's what they're looking for. I think at the end of the day, I think those physicians that figure that out, they're going to be the ones that, that win. Uh, Andy, I think, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I agree with you. So I'm going to actually share a personal experience that I had or am going to be having. So I'm looking for a pediatric dentist for my, for my children. And so, you know, I got recommendations from regular physicians, their pediatricians. So they recommended one person. I went to their website, looked them up, and clearly on their website, they have a link to their their personal social media accounts. These two physicians that are in the group, they talk about themselves. They talk about where they live, their family, their pets, what you can where uh, you can see them around town. I mean, they've completely opened themselves up through their website and through the social media channels so that you get to know them and you actually feel comfortable before you even go in to meet with them. And we haven't met with these physicians yet, but we're looking forward to meeting them next month. So it's exciting. I think we're going to have to do a flashback and find out what the outcome was. Yeah, I'd be happy to share. That'd be good. And, you know, wrapping this up for myself, I think this is the most researched and dedicated version of going and telling mom what your sibling just did this is the biggest tattletale i've ever seen <laughs> because on, honestly that i can't see it in any other way than somebody's being grumpy and they're not having fun so they're going to tattle on people having fun is just how i feel the motive for this was this is when aj will insert the ice ice baby all right with that being said let's head over to a west he's got some interesting topics about proton therapy so we're going to talk a little bit about a study that came out recently as it relates to proton therapy. Proton therapy has been around for a number of years. It's a form of radiation therapy treatment which uses proton matters instead of photons which are uh, conventionally used. So most linear accelerators, most radiation therapy centers that you would go to to treat your cancers use photons which are emitted for radiation therapy purposes. This study, which evaluated 107 patients to determine if proton therapy could reduce the total toxicity burden as a primary endpoint. So essentially what they were looking for is what is a side effect profile for patients that undergo proton therapy utilization. They looked into efficacy results with, and they compared similarly with photons uh, when used in IMRT fashion. And they were very similar with a three-year progression-free survival 
and a median follow-up of about 44 months. So one of the authors of this article believes that the advancements show a significant reduction in events with protons compared to IMRT, especially in high-stakes malignancies such as esophageal cancer and lung cancer. From a non-radiation oncologist perspective, as myself, I'll play the dummy in this one because it's very easy. What is the difference between conventional radiotherapy and proton beam? When they say conventional radiotherapy, what does that mean? What kind of beam? Is it a laser beam? Is it a different type of method? Or I'm not quite sure what exactly that means when they just say conventional. Radiation is emitted in three different forms. So you have electron radiation therapy, you have photon radiation therapy, and then you have a newer form, um, which is called proton radiation therapy. So for decades, people have always used either electrons or photons when treating cancers. Um, one of the newer forms is called proton, which is a heavier material and a heavier matter. And this has started taking shape. It's very, very expensive in building these proton therapy centers. Um, so not every hospital offers it, but there are many hospitals around the country that do offer proton therapy. Most of your conventional radiation therapy is referred to as electrons or photons and mainly being photon radiation therapy. So I do know a little bit about proton therapy because we do have a proton beam building here in Rochester that Mayo Clinic built. And I do know from what little I can gather is 90% of the building was built just for the proton beam. It took that much hardware to kill cancer tumors with a proton beam. Is this something that you guys see as being scalable to smaller size, smaller um, buildings that they can have more readily available in the five to 10 year future? Oh, this is a loaded question. OS, you want to take it first? When protons first came out, they were very, very expensive to install one of these systems. I mean, we're talking about $150 million and upwards of that price Point. And they took up massive amounts of space, and the build-out, the construction costs, cost, the vault costs were exorbitantly expensive. That price has come down significantly over the past couple of years. I think you could be able to get a proton system installed for somewhere in the realm of about $50 million. When you compare that price tag to conventional system that will offer photon and electron radiation therapies, those systems range anywhere between 2 million to 5 million. So that's a 10 times more expensive piece of equipment. I just don't know that many local hospitals, even five years from now or 10 years from now, would be willing to take on the extra burden and expenditures of such an elaborate system. There's also newer introduction of proton therapy where it's a smaller footprint and it's got one room gantry system and uh, ability. And, you know, instead of it being a uh, 150 million, you can maybe do it for 20, 25 million. But to put that in perspective, I built a 50,000 square foot cancer center, fully comprehensive for $25 million. It's a cost prohibitive discussion that I think organizations are gonna to have to think about. And the reality is, is that as we move to a more outcomes-driven decision-making process inside of medicine, there's not a lot of proof out there in data that protons delivers better outcomes 
for the majority of cancers that one would treat with radiation. I think this study is interesting because they kind of created a new outcome. So they talk about, you know, their total toxicity burden and that they combined 11 different adverse effects, um, which wasn't used previously as a validated endpoint. So I think that was interesting. I think the other thing that I would be curious to, you know, maybe do a little bit of a deeper dive into this is were those 11 toxicities and endpoints that they picked, were they ones that were picked that are going to be advantageous to the unique properties of proton therapy versus photons. And what we mean by that is, is that there's this really cool effect called the Bragg peak. So if you think of what a hockey stick looks like, you've got like the long handle, and then you've, you know, sort of this sharp gradient of where the head of the hockey stick is. So if you're going to look at a graph and think of kind of radiation coming into the body would sort of be the, the long pole part of the hockey stick. And then as it gets really close to the tumor, you've got sort of this portion at the head of the stick that is where the most energy is administered to that cancer and that it immediately like falls off. So anything beyond that point doesn't get doses of radiation. And so that's one of the curiosities that I have is, is it truly something that is advantageous or do the, the endpoints that they selected and whatnot, did it help to show the advantages of proton therapy? Oh, that's a, that's a very good answer. Andy, I've got a question. You have a lot more experience with proton therapy than I do. And one of the arguments that I've always heard against proton therapy is that you mentioned the Bragg peak effect. And the argument has always been that you don't know in that Bragg peak effect where it's going to hit that highest point and that there is a couple of mil, uh, millimeters of variance. And now if you're hitting or trying to treat very critical structures in close proximity to your tumor, are you able to ensure that you will have total dose fall off right before you get into that Bragg peaks uh, maximum zone? I don't have a definitive answer. I, can I call a friend in and ask a physicist? I would say based on the knowledge that I have up to this point in time, there is still some uncertainty. I think it's anything with radiation. There's a little bit of uncertainty, whether it's three millimeters or 3%, or if it's something different, I'm willing to bet that there is a small amount of uncertainty. And there's probably some way that they kind of feather the beam or feather the edge or through the dosimetric parameters that they account for that. But I haven't actually done a proton plan in five or six years. So I can't say what's changed in that that time frame no that was those were really good explanations and i appreciate it because it is such an intriguing part of healthcare as a machine this radiation radiation oncology that most people don't see it unless they have to as a patient so getting to understand how it works and how things are decided upon and what the value is and the value add uh one question i had for both of you about this is when you talk about the price of just installing a proton beam therapy. With the way things are going now during coronavirus and our, our pandemic and our extreme kerfuffle of a healthcare system, 
do you think that in the future there might be ways for facilities to house something like a proton beam therapy that wouldn't rest on the shoulders of a healthcare system to purchase, but maybe something that's more local government, state government, something different? Because I think if we're expecting healthcare systems to run like a business, you know, at some point it's going to burn itself out. I don't know that the government will likely put a proton system in one of, one of their facilities. I don't know if a VA system has a proton therapy system or not. Andy, are you aware of any? Uh, now within the VA. Yeah, so I am not either. But, you know, I can give you an example of what a couple of large academic centers in the New York City area have done is they basically built a proton consortium where large academic centers that typically compete against each other decided to build a consortium where they all put in money and built a proton therapy center that they all will send their patients to that require proton therapy services. So I think that's a way of thinking about it, especially if you have such a large out-of-pocket cost to build one of these, and you don't know if you're going to be able to essentially have enough patients to treat full-time on that system. I think this was a creative way for these institutions to bring the best care to their patients and to obviously not take on all of the associated risk with putting in such a a large capital expenditure project. My answer will kind of come in two parts. The first part of my answer is kind of the, the economic side. So I think there was a rush for large capital investment and whatnot in protons because there was the promise of first to make a lot of money. And the reality is, is that the the way our reimbursement has been set up is that it has been advantageous to this point in time that if you treat with protons and you can get paid for it, you get paid more. Uh, and so I think that was sort of the gold rush that you saw of a lot of healthcare organizations investing in protons. The second part of my answer is, what is the reality? Well, the reality is today, pediatric care, I think peds make sense for protons. I think anything outside of pediatrics, the the data doesn't say that protons is better. It may say it's as good or equivalent, but I haven't really seen anything else that you know states that protons does deliver a better outcome in other indications. So with that being said, I would kind of take a page out of the Cancer Treatment Centers of America playbook. Uh, I would look at the US, I would understand where our largest metropolitan areas are, and I would draw a circle around those areas of a drivable distance. And that could be 300, that could be 500 mile radius around that epicenter. and that's where I would place these proton centers because I think it makes sense to have that technology available. So that way, if you've got an indication or you have a child that would benefit from the use of proton therapy, that you have that accessibility to it. But outside of that, I don't see this being something that there's one in each of the 50 states or there's, you know, one in every community. I just, I don't think that efficacy is there. I don't think the economics are there. And I don't think the the patient demand is there. That's interesting, Andy, that you think that a 600 mile to a thousand mile delta between the two centers is, is a, 
appropriate. I think that is too high. I think they should be closer uh, to maybe 100 miles. I think it depends. I mean, I think you have to think about what is that overall patient experience. And, and if you're thinking of, let's say, 10 treatments, and whether that's twice a day or once for you know five days a week for the course of two weeks, it depends on how you want that to sort of go. Do you want it to be where the patient can drive in on a daily basis and they go back home? Or do you want to have a different type of experience where you think of the frontier state? So I spent a year and a half in Billings, Montana. Uh, and most of those patients drive three hours for treatment. And so what we would do is we made sure that there was hotel accommodations. We made sure that their um, support system could stay with them. We we made sure that we cared for them in that way. And, and that is another experience. And so I guess that's kind of where the the balance comes between the economics and the accessibility and the ultimate patient experience. No, those are all great points. I have them every once in a while. <laughs> so with Andy finishing this great subject on a good note, because he has a good point every now and then, we're going to go and talk a little tech stuff. So here we go. That's right. We're talking today text messaging. If you guys have ever heard of it, your phones can actually send text from one phone to the other. No, but what's coming out now is some people have been using text messaging as part of therapy and mental health and looking at it as a psychotherapy tool in real time. One thing that I found really interesting about this article was that I actually went through a trial period with something very similar where I think it was called Care Notes. Cope Notes. And it was just something that a, a gentleman set up because his friend was going through a rough patch and he just was sending him texts every day just to be encouraging. And it was really fun. And he had it set up where it was an automated kind of system. But for me, just getting those little dings every now and then with a nice little message is can be very encouraging for people. And so what happened was 91% of participants in psychiatric services study found that the text messaging services was acceptable and 94% indicated that it made them feel better. And 87% said they would recommend it to a friend. So when you're thinking in, in your life, because of coronavirus, because of the pandemic time, how are you connecting with people? How are you getting that socialness that as human beings we need and we crave for our own mental well-being? Uh, well, outside of my day job of Zoom from like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., I would say for me personally, it is my my social networks, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, I've got a couple of text messaging groups. And so yeah, for me, it is all about that mobile connection, whether it's via text or my my social media platforms. That's where I guess I sort of live to get that connection to stay in tune with what's going on and to connect with other people. So for me, that's, that's, I guess, how I've operated for quite a few years. Um, and I think in this time of COVID, for me, it hasn't been that big of a change because living on the road, living in an airport, living out of a suitcase, that's typically how I've always kept my connections. And, and so for me, it's just, I guess, more of the same. How about you, Wes? You know, I've got a very close-knit family and a large friend social circle. 
So COVID, COVID has definitely hit me very hard in terms of not being able to, you know, enjoy the company of others. And now having a job which requires me to work remotely um, out of my home office definitely does take, take a toll on your mental uh, health. But, you know, obviously staying connected through FaceTime, through Zoom and these other medias is the only way that I'm kind of coping at this point. Do you guys find social media when you're doing a day-to-day revitalizing? Are your, I guess maybe what we should look at is how does the algorithm feed you stuff? What kind of content are you guys individually seeing? I've got a, a couple of things. So purposefully, I actually stepped away from checking Twitter for three weeks. And I did that part of because I was just seeing the same thing over and over again. Um, So I wanted to see, A, if I could break the algorithm by not interacting, if it would change things. Two, I did it just because I needed to go seek out new information from other populations um, or other sources. And three, what I was seeing and reading was there was a negative tone to it. And so for me, you know, when I start to see that, hear that, witness it. It sounds corny, but it's kind of like, okay, I need to pause and and step out of the matrix and kind of let the matrix reset itself and then decide to plug myself back in. So that was, you know, something that I sort of try to always be in tune to. Uh, and that's something that I just recently did a few weeks ago. You know, I've never been very active on social media I used Facebook early on and I just, you know, to Andy's point, it was the same content over and over again. It was the same stuff and I needed, I needed to unplug. And when I did unplug, it just, it was revitalizing to not be connected to, you know, a Facebook account, a Snapchat account and, you know, almost having subliminally checking it every hour, every two hours or every couple hours. Um, so it was nice to unplug and I really haven't gone back to the social media routes. Occasionally I'll watch, you know, YouTube and obviously it'll loop back whatever the last video I watched and show me related content, but it's been nice to unplug uh, for a while now. I'm completely with you. I've, I've been very distant from social media. I will occasionally interact with Twitter and I think because of who I follow, my algorithm for Twitter seems to be a fairly positive one. It, tends to be a lot of people in healthcare that I've met throughout the years. And I've completely nuked my Instagram and Facebook accounts. Those are gone. I find my mental clarity, even though I might not know about certain things going on locally, I feel better (laughs) about life, uh, if that makes sense. But I still crave, for me, I still crave that interaction with others and being able to connect. Yeah, I I can't agree. I can't agree with you more, AJ. We, I had a similar situation when we were in the thick of the pandemic and we were the epicenter over here in New York where our case count was you know, going up at an exponential rate. In the middle of it, we just kind of got cabin fever and it was difficult and not seeing friends and family. So we actually made a plan with one of our friends to go to a restaurant and enjoy a meal together, which we hadn't done for a long time. And obviously the restaurant's being closed, so you're not able to sit inside and eat we decided to go pick up our meals park our cars two spaces away from each other roll down our windows and eat in our cars but that still gave that feeling of being close and having that social interaction which we had been missing for so long 
Yeah, you know, what's really interesting to me, and maybe this would make a, a great sort of guest on this podcast, is Dr. Keener from Blackbird Health. I met Dr. Keener maybe five or six years ago. And at that point in time, we had started Blackbird Health sort of under the UPMC portfolio, but it was really about sort of that telemedicine or leveraging telemedicine to be able to do this kind of interaction with young adults that might be experiencing anxiety, depression, and, and other issues. I know Matt's got like a huge passion for this. And I just remember some of our conversations that Dr. Keener and I would have on that immediate ability to connect and to leverage technology, whether it's through telemedicine or AJ to the, the article you were pointing back to, you know, simple things like SMS and text messaging is that we're social creatures and we want to connect. And whether you're suffering from ICD-10 coded mental health diagnosis, or if it's just the mental health aspect of everyday daily life, amidst a pandemic, being able to leverage those tools and know that, A, I'm not alone, B, someone's listening to me, C, somebody is there for me in my time of need, can instantaneously sort of alleviate some of those feelings of, am I in this all by myself? Or are there other people that are having similar anxieties or similar thoughts or similar experiences because at the end of the day that's what being a human is is all about one thing that we want to look at with this text messaging psychotherapy is that it is with a real human being on the other side so it isn't a chat bot it isn't an automated reply in response. This is just you texting with another human being that's a psychotherapist. And what I found really interesting is that 95% of participants initiated the intervention. So what they did is they were empowered to say, hey, I'm having a crap day, or can I talk to you about XYZ? And I think when you talk about ICD-10, yeah, our medical codes can't keep up with technology and how we use things. And that's going to be a consistent struggle. But the fact of the matter is that we have a significant shortage of mental health access and mental health capability in the United States. And I think this is a really stupidly simple way to engage with people in a, in a way to help their mental health. And usually when I say stupidly simple, that's not to denigrate what they do or make fun of, but it's just that we have these abilities where it's not a huge chunk out of our day. We don't have to download another app or go to a different portal or make an appointment to make sure that we get to this place at the right time. It's just pull up my phone. I'm going to text my psychotherapist and have a chat similar to what Talkspace is, which has definitely stood the test of time. Uh, and with that, I think that's a good time to wrap it up. So any last thoughts, Wes or Andy? I agree. I mean, I think with any of our topics, whether it's connecting via SMS and text messaging, whether it's building personal brand, or whether it's having accessibility to proton therapy, I think all those decisions are, are individual and they're based at the end of one. No, I think you covered the closing very well. I think it's a, it's a real issue. It's a concern that people have on these pandemics or putting people in isolation and silos is not helping. So to have an outlet that's basically as simple as sending a message through your phone 
is a worthwhile cause and we should make people aware of it. And with that being said, I think that's a great time to say thank you for listening. This is our second podcast and this will keep evolving as we go on. You can check us out on social media and we do have an email that I set up now. So if you have any ideas, questions, uh, rants and raves, you can email us at the end pod at gmail.com. That's A-T-T-H-E-E-N-D-P-O-D at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. I'm at AJ Montpetit, wherever social media is available. And you will soon be able to find me on social medias. And as always, I'm Andy DeLeo. You can find me uh, as Cancer Geek on all the social media platforms. And as always, whether it's medicine, technology, or just connecting with the person across from you, remember, life is all about practicing at the end of one. <laughs>